Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest on this episode is Tyler Fuller. On the 1st of January 2020, then 19-year-old Tyler suffered a traumatic brain injury after accidentally falling headfirst off a 10-metre high cliff. Tyler needed life-saving brain surgery in which one-third of his skull was removed and he was in a coma for 19 days afterwards. Tyler's family and friends were given a grim prognosis and were readying themselves to either say goodbye or goodbye to Tyler as they knew him when Tyler emerged from his coma and began to recover. Since then, Tyler has defied the odds, making a remarkable recovery that has surprised all of those around him. In this interview, Tyler speaks about his journey from the events surrounding the accident to his surgeries and recovery and how he thinks of the brain injury as a blessing in disguise. I find it fascinating what the brain and body can do and Tyler's story is a real testament to that and I hope you enjoy hearing it. Hi Tyler, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you? Yes, good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. So like I was saying before, it's been a little while since I've had you on my radar to come on the show. So it's, I'm actually really excited to speak with you and hear your story today. So a couple of years ago, actually a bit over a couple of years ago now, you yeah. suffered a traumatic brain injury, which we will get to talking about today. But I would like to, as I do with all of my interviews, go back a bit before that. So if you could take us back to before you had your accident and tell us a bit about what you were like back then. Before my accident, I was, you know, at school and I had just graduated school, actually. Um, I was fresh out of school, 2018, I graduated. All through year 12, I was very interested in um, the Air Force, in the Defence Force. So I um, got out of school, I didn't get an ATAR, came out of school and I started the interview process for the Air Force. While I was going through the interview process, I was a landscaper um, as a labourer doing just general landscaping duties. I was finally um, enlisted into the Air Force. So towards the end of 2019, I was enlisted into the Air Force. Um, Had my enlistment date set for the 11th of February of 2020. And then my accident happened on the 1st of January of 2020. So that put a halt to my Air Force dreams. So New Year's Eve 2019, 2020. Tell us about that night. It was the 31st of December of 2019. Uh, myself and two other mates were driving down to Middleton at a, one of our other mates, Shaq's down there, uh, who was hosting a New Year's Eve party. So we started driving and we got down there about, about four-ish that evening. We rocked up and we just set up our swags and we, we started the drinking games early. We I remember cooking the barbecue and cooking the dinner for everyone and I remember that my last memory that night was um, having a photo taken of my of my mullet, which I had at the time. <laughs> I've actually got that photo. Hey, it looks like that... you've still got now. Yes, got yes. Now. <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've grown it out again. But yeah, that was my last memory of was uh, that photo being taken. So that was about five thirty that night. Everything after that, I don't remember at all. So. After 5.30, you don't remember anything that happened, but you've obviously had to piece it together based on what people have told you after the event or a long time after the event because I know you were in a coma for quite a while. But So can you take us through what you know now of what happened on that night after 
obviously you don't remember, but from what people have told you? Yeah, so from what I was told, like I was saying, I've been told, yeah, a handful of different stories of what happened that night. But from the one I believe that happened um, and I guess has been the most frequently told was I went to bed that night, brushed my teeth, got my swag, then I just suddenly got up. No one saw me um, wake up, but I suddenly just awoke and just left the the house that we were staying at and just went for my own walk. Then one of my mates had caught me um, walking out and he started chasing me and telling me to come back and obviously being so intoxicated at that, that time, um, I was a bit silly and just started running away from me and um, just thought it was a bit of fun and games. So everyone else was asleep. Yeah, yeah, everyone was asleep at this time. I'm not sure how my mate actually caught me. Again, I don't actually know the full well, story. Did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was it was very lucky. I don't even want to imagine what a, I do imagine sorry what what does happen. What would happen if he didn't follow me that night? But yeah, he did catch me that night and he followed me to I was being silly and running away from him. Um and then I yeah, approached the the cliff edge of of the Middleton Beach and um just ran straight off that. So you ran off a cliff or yeah. you fell off a cliff? Yeah, so I I ran off of it. I did. Um, did you know it was there? No, I didn't, no. Okay, so this was an accident. Obviously. This was an accident. Yeah, so that's why I say <laughs> it was an accident. Just clarifying that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so no, I did not know that this cliff edge was there and obviously being so intoxicated and, you know, this was about two in the morning so it was dark and, yeah, I had no idea. Now... Going back there, and I've obviously seen photos of this cliff. Can you describe it to us? Yeah, so it's 10 metres tall. There's, at the bottom of the of this cliff, there's the beach, the Middleton Beach, and um, there's all rocks and un- and stuff at the, at the bottom of the cliff. So I, yeah, obviously I'd run off this cliff and um, fell headfirst on these rocks. So you fell off a 10-metre-high cliff headfirst onto rocks yeah, and survived that. I don't know how, like I was saying to you before, that's amazing that you survived that. <laughs> but to be like the way you are now, your recovery has been amazing. So you've fallen down the cliff. Your mate has realised that you've fallen. Do you know what happened after that? Yeah, so somehow, I'm not too sure how, um, my mate, he somehow climbed down the cliff edge i've been back there a couple of times and he came in me one time and he tried to explain how he got down and even he said he doesn't know because it was just all because it's pretty pretty straight up and down isn't it the it's cliff? it's a very ver- it's very vertical it's a very vertical <laughs> it's um uh, yeah it's not sure how he got down but he somehow got down he said he didn't even remember how he got down it was all just happened so quickly but yeah he scaled down the the edge and he set up his um he he saw me obviously being I was unconscious at the time so he put his um phone with his spotlight on in a in the rock in a rock that um could provide some light for me and he dragged me off the rock and he um held my head still in case of a of a spinal injury so he did everything right that night I got very lucky that he was that he was there that night but yeah he he had dragged me off and he was holding my head still he um soon realized that there was a lot of blood on his hand when he took his hand out 
he grabbed his phone and he called some other mates. So a couple of other mates came down and, um, yeah, a, a bunch of people ended up um, trying to help me out and I was just slowly getting worse, slow, like a lot more unresponsive. And so they they thought calling an ambulance would probably be the next best um, thing, which, yeah, which was done at that time. So they called an ambulance and you were airlifted to hospital. Is that right? Yes. So I was, they called an ambulance. The ambulance came down. Obviously being on a New Year's Eve, it was, all the ambos were very busy that night. All the paramedics were very busy that night. So it was this um, this bloke called Ian, who I've actually met a couple of times now, and it's great. Um, oh. Yeah, he was, he was yeah, he's a, he's a legend. But um, this bloke called Ian, and he's an ICU paramedic, and he was my first responder of the night. And he had to he came down by himself. He attended me, and he was with me um, by himself for about an hour because all the other paramedics were very busy that night. Oh wow. That's a long time. It is, yeah. He did a lot of, he did everything he could. He was also concerned about uh, possibly intubating me on the beach, which from what he told me is a very hard process to do out of a clinical environment, out of a hospital or anything like that. Some more um, help came. The SES came down. Police had to come down. A couple more ambos ended up coming down. And um, I was put on a stretcher at the time and um, carried off the beach. And the closest, I guess, entry point to the beach from this cliff edge is, it was about a kilometre down. So they would have had to walk a fair while oh, wow. carrying me on the beach and, um, yeah, trying to find the stairs. So they got up the stairs and they was put in the ambo and I was, yeah, taken to Victor Harbour Hospital, which was the closest hospital at the time. Now, you were in a coma for 19 days after this happened. What have you been told about that time? Actually, can I ask you before before you answer that? Yeah. People often say when someone's in a coma to talk to them because they can hear you. Do you actually remember any of that time in the coma or is that a stupid question? No, that's not a stupid question. I don't remember a lot of time in a coma. I do remember one time though. I do remember one time and it was a it was a almost a dream that I had. And I, I tried to put it all together, and it was it was at the time of my coma, and it was a dream I had about I saw a bunch of white in my room, this bright white, and I I'm not I'm not one to believe you know when you die you see white light and everything like that I'm not one to believe that, but it's funny how yeah being in a coma, um that's what I that was my last that's my last memory of my coma is that's my only memory of coma is seeing all this white. It's really interesting. It is. It, it was very interesting because I'm not I'm not about that at all. But, yeah, I thought that was um, very interesting. Well, I'm presuming you were very close to dying. Um, yeah, so I'll just quickly jump back. From Victor Harbour Hospital, when I was there, I, I'd actually stopped breathing there. So they had to um, resuscitate me. And at this time was when they decided to call an emergency helicopter to pick me up and take me to to Flinders Medical Centre. A helicopter came, um, it had picked me up, took me to Flinders, and yes, at this time I was I was really bad. I was rushed in to the emergency and went in straight into a surgery as soon as I got to Flinders. What were your parents, friends, what were they being told at this time? 
Like, what was your prognosis at the time? At the at the time of the accident when I actually had fallen off, yeah, they they took a while to call mum because from what they told me, I was although I was unresponsive, they could still my pupils reacting and everything like that. So they they didn't call um, my parents at the time um, until a bit later um, when I started to get worse. And so one of my friends had called mum and mum was, yeah, mum was told that I had um, I had, had a fall. That's what one of my mates said to my mum. I had a fall. So mum wasn't very worried at all at the time when she heard that. Oh. Then the next phone call she received was that I was being airlifted to Flinders Medical Centre for a surgery. So mum was... I guess all my family and friends were very confused about what was going on and mum when mum found that out mum had met or my most of my family actually had met me down at Flinders Medical Centre when I was being airlifted there they got there before I landed so mum actually my brother and and mum actually saw me being wheeled out of the helicopter into emergency and they said I did not look good at all yeah they didn't have any hope at that time when they saw me being wheeled into surgery I had a big black eye as well. I'd landed on my, obviously landed on my eye somehow as well. So I had uh, a big black eye, which probably would have made a bit worse for mum to see. But mm. but yeah. Must have been pretty scary for them. Probably a good thing you don't remember it. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of people say that. It's probably good I don't remember. I'm glad I don't remember. But um, mm. yeah, it was for mum, dad, for family, friends. It was all very... I guess probably more traumatic for them than for me from from um, how they've reacted to it, I guess. So after the 19 days you come out of the coma, what's the first thing that you remember of that time? I actually remember being wheeled out of the ICU room to my ward room. I briefly remember being wheeled in a hallway um, to my ward room and I remember the bloke that was wheeling me as well, but it was a very quick, it was a very quick memory, I guess. I don't actually remember. I remember about a minute or two of that, and then I don't remember much else. I don't even remember going into the ward room or, or anything like that. My next memory from that would have been days that I was in my ward room for, um, and I just my next memory was staring at a clock, and yeah, that was it. Was very don't remember a lot coming out of the coma. So at this stage, though, your loved ones are being told that you are not going to be able to talk again. You're not going to be able to walk or move. Is that right? Yeah. So when I was being wheeled into um, my emergency surgery, all the doctors at the time obviously had to get mum and dad into a separate room and um, and get all these paperwork, all this paperwork signed. Um, for my surgery and I guess the paperwork was was just so that they're not liable for anything else that happens in the surgery so they had to get that all signed and um, once my surgery was done mum and dad were both pulled into a separate room again Um, my surgery went for about nine hours I think so this is the initial surgery is it when you arrived at the hospital yeah yeah so this is yeah the night the night that I well the morning that I got there so I got my surgery started about 8 a.m. on the 1st of January 2020. Sorry, finished about 8 a.m. on the 1st. And, um, yeah, they had to do a decompressive craniectomy, which is they have to take part of the skull out to ease the swelling on the brain. 
so that's a big that's a big process that would have taken a lot of the a lot of the time but they had to do that they also had to clean up i guess i had fractured my skull obviously as well so i they had to clean up all the broken fragments of my skull that was just floating around in the brain and stuff so a lot of brain bleeding as well at the time so they had to clean all that up and yeah so it was a it was a big surgery for them i i believe so what were they telling your parents when they were in that room when I um when they had finished it, they got mum and dad into a separate room and they said, um, look, we we did this, we've done the surgery. We don't know, you know, we don't know what it's going to be like for him. It's really all up to him now how he, I guess, how he recovers. And he, they just had no idea what what was going to happen to me. Um, they had they they did their bit. They did a great job with the surgery, and it was all up to me, I guess, after that. But um, when they did pull mum and dad into the separate room my family thought that they were going to be told that I had died in the surgery. So they were they were very worried at that time when they got pulled in separately. But they weren't told you survived it, obviously. But they were not told that, no. <laughs> no, they they weren't told that. I had survived and I'd, I'd come out and spent the 19 days in, in my coma and, um, yeah, I guess it was all from there that the, um, the recovery starts. So can you tell us about your recovery so your hospital stay and then your rehab stay can you talk to us a bit about all of that yeah so out of my coma um, was put into the neuro ward room and I spent a bit over a week there I believe and this was at the time I wasn't able to walk I was on a I was in a wheelchair for the first couple days then I was put on a walker again I it wasn't like I couldn't walk because of a cognitive problem. It was I couldn't walk because I was just very weak and had spent you know most of January in in bed. So I was just um, yeah had very weak legs, which was I guess I was I was lucky. I'd rather have weak legs than a cognitive problem. Yeah. In regards to walking, but yeah, I couldn't walk at the time. Um, so I did a bit of rehab at Flinders um, on the walker. Couldn't speak very well either. Couldn't pronounce any words. I would had a very um, stuttered a lot. Couldn't speak well at all. And my family said that they, when I came out and I could actually start speaking a bit, they accepted me for that. They thought that was going to be that's how I was going to be. And they were told that as well. The um, neurosurgeon said, you know, this this could be him. The neurosurgeons also said to my family when I was in my coma. Um, they said to when I sorry when I woke from my coma, they said to my family and friends, um, the best case scenario would be that I would be in a wheelchair. The best case scenario. Yeah, the best case scenario was uh, being in a wheelchair. So my family actually started planning. They started looking at houses. All my friends and family said they were going to move into a big house together and you know help take oh. care of me <laughs> and then and install ramps and everything like that. So they actually were working around that from what they were told and um yeah it was it was it's but great you had to hear no problems with walking no so i just had weakness that was it and i was in a wheelchair for a couple of days and uh put on a walker and yeah i could walk fine after that so um i'm i'm yeah very grateful i'm not in a wheelchair in terms of your being able to speak though was it that i'm not sure if you would remember this but did you know what to say and you just couldn't get it out or was it that you didn't know what to say? Like how, how did that feel for you at the time? I guess at the time I knew I knew what I wanted to say. I just physically couldn't say it. 
I wasn't understood. It was a very, I guess, broken, broken language almost. I guess you could say I couldn't couldn't pronounce anything properly. I I just made sort of grunt noises. That's the only way I could communicate and speak. Which my I don't know how, but I saw videos and yeah, my family seemed to understand me fine, which is which is good. <laughs> but yeah, I just could not pronounce any words properly at all. I just it was a lot of grunts and and moans and yeah. Can I ask what, which part of your brain actually got injured? So I land on the back of my head, but from what I was told, it was my temporal lobes that my left temporal lobe that caught more of the the damage. So the let the temporal lobe for anyone that doesn't know, it's on the side of the head near the ear. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Yeah, it's on the it's on the side. So obviously my left, I fell on the left side of my head, but on the back. So I. I'm yeah I'm quite surprised that I guess nothing in the back was affected it was more my temporal lobe on the front and I think they my family was told that it was because of the impact even though I landed on the back the impact caused my temporal lobe to be more damaged surprised it was just the yeah this on the side there and and not the back did you have any problems understanding people at the time no I don't I don't believe so. From what I remember, I I feel like I understood people at the time. I felt like I I felt like I understood people fine, but from what my family told me, I didn't seem like I did. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think I did. From what I remember, I could understand, but yeah, no, apparently not. So what was happening in your head was kind of different to what they were seeing and kind of what was coming out. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time I thought I was fine. I came out and I didn't even know what it, I'd sorry, I already knew what had happened somehow. I didn't ask anyone what happened while I was there. Even though I don't remember about the accident, I already knew what had happened. So it was a bit weird like that. But from how I spoke and how I walked and all this stuff, I felt fine. I felt like I was fine, but my family and friends saw different Seeing the videos of me talking um, was probably the the biggest for me because I I do remember at the time speaking fine, but if you watch the videos, it's not, yeah, it's not fine at all. It's not understandable at all. So yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, I was I was. It's good having those videos because again, yeah. I don't. It's good seeing how I was, which was very different to what I thought I was like. Can you talk to us about the things that were difficult? For you and the things you had to kind of work on in rehab and I guess what your rehab looked like? Speaking was something obviously I I did a lot of in, in my rehab. But from Flinders on the 31st, I believe it was, of January, I went to, I was picked up and taken to um, Hampstead, which is a rehabilitation centre that I believe most people with brain injury go to out of hospital and stuff. So yeah, I was taken to Hampstead and that's when my rehab began. That was very full on, I guess. Not in a bad way. It was just a lot of rehab was had to be done. I was also in a helmet for about six months, which was a bit average to to be in for, for a while. So being in a helmet sort of disrupted my sleep and, and all this. I wasn't allowed to do, wasn't allowed to do anything without wearing my helmet. So the only time I was allowed to take it off was when I was sitting down or in bed. Every other time I had to wear this helmet. 
Now, this is because you didn't have part of your skull? Yeah, exactly right. That's So my had about, I don't know, about a third of my my skull was taken out. So I remember just sort of touching that area and all you could feel was just, I could feel my brain. So it was it was pretty cool to feel, but um, yeah, it's I I understand why they you'd have to wear a helmet because if I did fall, yeah, that that wouldn't have ended very well. But that was no. to protect my to protect the brain that I guess was exposed that wasn't protected by my skull. So, what sort of tasks did you have to relearn other than speaking? Was there anything else that you had to work on? Yeah, so I I had to. A lot of rehab, you, you you go through all the, all your, it's a lot of cognitive um, rehab as well. I did go through a lot of physical rehab. So obviously I had a physio and, but it was more cognitive. So problem solving and reading and writing, everything like that, which I actually received a report from Flind, uh, from Hampstead of how I was going at the time and from what I saw, it was just average. It was just very all average for how I should have been at that time. Um, and there were a few other ones that I was below average with. So, but I don't actually really remember a lot from Hampstead. There were there was there's a period of time I don't remember a lot of, and yeah, Hampstead was one of them, unfortunately. What's that like, not being able to knowing that all of this happened and not being able to remember it? It's it's pretty. I, I wish I did remember it. It's not, I remember, I want to remember the names. The names was something I, I really struggled with was remembering people's names. And I just, I remember the nurses there being just great to me. And I wish I did remember a lot more of that. And I wish I remembered my recovery more because when I get asked these questions, I'd love to um, tell people how I went and what it was like. But yeah, I just, I just cannot remember. And it's, it is pretty it's not it's not the best to forget i guess important things that happen in your life but i believe my recovery was very important and yeah i just can't remember a lot of it all right so off you go home what was that like for you yeah so i i got out of hampstead on the 28th and got to go home 28th of february yeah 20th of february yep and that was that was very different for me coming home. To me, it almost felt like it was a new house. You know, I've been living here for a while, and um, yeah, I got back from my from my injury, and yeah, just home looked very different to me. I had to have mum ended up um, being my full time carer when I got home um, because I still was struggling with, I guess, the essential tasks that I needed help with. Um, showering and and everything like that I wasn't allowed to shower I had to um mum had to bathe me for about six months and that was interesting um, Why was that? uh that was because well that was a because of my head with the helmet on I wasn't allowed to get anything wet that was also because um they didn't want me slipping over in the shower or anything like that so I had to be watched uh, yep. a lot but no home looked very different to me when I got back I had to sleep with mum as well. Had to sleep with mum for a, for that few months. So you were on twenty four hour watch. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I was. I guess that's more due to the fact that I didn't have a skull, so they didn't. Well, part of the skull. So I think they wanted just to make sure that I didn't. When I was sleeping, I didn't wear a helmet, so I didn't. 
mum was worried that I'd roll off the bed and everything like that. But Hampstead yeah. did say to mum that it's good to leave each day, leave him for an hour by himself, leave the house and leave him for an hour at home by himself so he can start being more independent, which I thought was great. Very scary at the time. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I forgot. I'm sure where... it was scary for your mum too. Oh, it was. I don't. I think she just drove around the corner, to be honest. I don't think she went everywhere. But... <laughs> Sat outside the front of the house yeah. in the car. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, just coming home, I just forgot everything. I forgot where, you know, the knives and forks were, where the plates were. I just forgot a lot of things. Um, everything I knew before my accident, I just forgot where they were, and um, which was a bit of a struggle for me, mm-hmm. but... I mean, I guess, yeah, it's just that just that accident that caused me to just forget a lot of things uh, that I already knew. Do you think that's one of the biggest issues that you have, is your memory? Yeah, yeah. So at the, I guess, beginning of it all, I was diagnosed with short-term memory loss, which I believe is something that, well, I don't know, I can't really be certain, but I believe it might be something that most brain injury people might suffer or some at least, is um, short-term memory loss. Well, I do know that the temporal lobe has a lot to do with memory. Yeah, exactly right. So yeah. it's also probably part of what the, where the injury site was. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's definitely played a role. But they could see that my long-term memory was fine. I remembered I remembered all my family and friends, and I remembered all what had happened oh, really all before good. my accident. Yeah, so I remembered my life before my accident and everything. But it was my, yeah, it was my short-term memory that I really, I still struggle with a lot, probably the most out of out of anything else. So um, it's just things like people's names. If I am introduced to someone new and they tell me their name, I'll forget it almost instantly. Um, that's actually one of the big ones is, is people's names. I'm no good with people's names either. No, no. I have well, a I brain injury. <laughs> I, I don't remember being good with people's names before my accident anyway. So, I mean... <laughs> But, um, yeah. <laughs> now you've got a reason to forget I, people. <laughs> I've got a reason now. Yeah, I can say that to people now, so it's good. Yeah, just my short-term memory is I struggle with that a lot, which does annoy me because um, when I when I think about doing something, some sort of activity, I need to write it down as soon as I remember. You know, something simple like leaving leaving something in my car, I'll need to write that down to make sure I remember to go get it because, yeah, I'll forget. I'll forget to remember to get it after a while how short term is it do you know you said long term memory is okay so from a long time ago you remember but yeah um i wasn't told i guess how short but it's it's like it's almost instantly with certain things um like i said people's names is almost instantly but yeah it's i guess a few other things it takes a bit longer but it is it is quite fast Depending on, I guess, the importance of it as well. So I guess people's names is, is important, but that's something I forget very quickly. But something as simple as, you know, what I need to get from the shops, I'll need to write that down. Even if it's just two things, I'll forget. Or if, even if it's three things, I'll forget at least one thing. So um, it is, I guess, yeah, depending on the importance, it's more instant than, than some others. So when you were saying that during your rehab, you were doing average or below average, it seems to me like you've come a very long way. And I actually, when we were speaking before this, you were talking about um, neurosurgeons, how they were surprised at your case. So 
how far have you actually come and how surprised are doctors and people like that that you actually come this far? I get I get a lot of surprises. I get a lot of people, obviously having a brain injury is invisible, but I do get a lot of people when I tell them, say, oh, I wouldn't, even, wouldn't have guessed that you've got a brain injury. Mm-hmm. I guess I do, yeah, like I was saying before, I'm quite friendly with one of the neurosurgeons who didn't operate on me at the time but was my registrar for a while. So I'm quite friendly with him now and he introduced me to one of the other neurosurgeons. And, um, yeah, he told my my mate, the, the bloke I'm friendly with, how surprised he was at, I guess, at how, you know, having a brain injury, I was, I don't know, I guess I was just so, I was just there. I, was, I wasn't, I was all there, I guess. Because, yeah, it's, I think a lot of people, you know, when you say to people, I've got a brain injury, they expect a lot more. You know, they expect that you're a bit worse off. But, yeah, I guess I... I guess I'm not, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's actually good having that. But is it surprising to them that you've actually managed to recover this much? Like what your parents were being told at the beginning to thinking, you know, you're going to be in a wheelchair, you're not going to be able to talk any better than what you were, to being like you are now. How surprised is everyone that that's happened? It's, I guess uh, my family and friends are more surprised. I don't really see these neurosurgeons too often, but... Um, the neurosurgeons that I do see or the neurologists and everything like that, they are very surprised at the time. But my friendly and friends, from what they were told as well, that I was going to be worse off and they would, like they were told, you know, I'd be in a wheelchair and, you know, I'm I'm doing, I'm running half marathons now. So it's it's all very, I guess, yeah, I'm not too sure. I guess it's all just um, my family probably a bit more surprised at so. Do you have any ongoing rehab that you have to do now or are you finished with all of that? No, so I, I had about five months of rehab, which I'm all done with now. I obviously had the um, Hampstead rehab for most of February. I was at Flinders um, Rehabilitation Centre for five weeks and then I was at the Repat rehab for four weeks. And it was after the Repat where I, I guess I sort of, self-dismissed um my rehab i i guess i i called them up and i said what what i'm doing is just not like i just feel fine i feel fine with all my rehab um what they were teaching me was nothing new or nothing i was struggling with or anything like that so i sort of just said to them like yeah look i i feel fine like i feel great and i don't i feel like i don't need any further rehab and um so yeah i guess that was my last rehab which was um yeah about june that was wow so that was actually really quick yeah i'm thinking you're still doing like outpatient rehab or something like that yeah no i i do i do know a few other people that you know even a handful of years after their accident their brain injury accident they they're still going through um you know physio and and other rehabs but no i that's what i'm so grateful for is i just it was so quick for me my recovery it was so quick um, and I just, I felt great almost instantly after Hampstead, which is where I did most of my rehab. Yeah, I felt, I felt great after that. So I felt like I didn't really need any further rehab, which was, which was good. That's fantastic. Yeah. So the next thing was then, so you're wearing your helmet cause you've got a part of your skull missing. They then had to do a surgery to fill up that hole. Can you talk to us about that? 
that was done actually after after I dismissed myself from um, the repat rehab. I had to have I had this surgery booked in um, with Professor Matthew McDonald, who um, worked at the Calvary in the city. Um, had my surgery booked in with him, and that was for a a titanium plate that was going to be put in. So from what I was told, normally when they have to do a decompressive craniectomy and take out a skull from from someone, they normally freeze it. They want to use that to put back in afterwards. But mine was contaminated with sand. Obviously, I'd fallen on the rocks on the beach, so mine was contaminated with sand. So they had to they froze it and then they had to chuck it out because it was just the sand was contaminated. So they decided the next best option was a titanium plate which is what i had put in by professor mcdonald on the 15th of june of 2021 what was the recovery like from that that was fine i uh the surgery went for about um i think it was about five or six hours or five hours i think it was and i had 20 screws put in obviously i had to they had to screw in the plate into my skull so i've got about 20 screws right now in there and yeah that was calvary was amazing it's all it's obviously a brand new quite a brand new hospital and yeah it was great i i spent one night in the icu there at calvary um the next day i was put into my own room for and i was there for about a week about six days at um at calvary and i really i really had to just sit and wait for I guess the swelling to go down and everything like that. One actually interesting thing that I had done was um I had a needle put I had a needle sticking out of my head when they took the bandages off, and it was um it was connected to this tube that that ran down and I um was attached to this sack that I had to carry and this sack was was filled with blood, which was um oh yeah. So this this oh, needle I'm was all queasy. I can't. I don't like oh, blood. No, no <laughs> yeah, but this needle was was used to drain out all the fluid from from the surgery, which they ended up taking out. I think the day after. But when this needle was taken out, not everything was drained yet. So all the fluid from my brain ended up going right into my right eye socket, which was odd, and um, got this massive, massive um, black eye for about a week. So that was. Um, that was that was interesting. Um, I got I got some funny photos of that, but uh, yeah. But other than that, everything went went fine. It's all healed. Yeah, yeah. It it was great. Yeah. So I I came back a couple of days after that when I was got to leave, and yeah, he took the he took the bandages off, and um, he had to remove the staples that were put in in my scar. There were thirty seven staples put in on the scar so I, I guess that's a rough guy of how big it was yeah and yeah had the staples taken out and that was yeah they were very happy with how it all went and it was great i was happy with that family were happy with that good to not have the helmet anymore yes exactly right yeah no no more helmet which is great because yeah i was it was cool at the start wearing the helmet but after after a bit it got very annoying yeah so i think this is a good segue into your hairstyles uh, which <laughs> we were talking before about how you, you had grown out a mullet before all this happened. And then uh, obviously 
your head's having to get shaved and, and everything. You're getting scars and stitches and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> now you've got a full head of hair again, which I can see. No one else can see, but I can see. But can you talk to us about the fundraiser that your friends did for you? Yeah. So at the time when I was in my coma, my friends um, ended up doing this, creating this fundraiser called Mullet for a Mate, it was called. And this was this was early on in my coma it was made and um it was because i um before my accident before my accident happened i had a um i had a mullet it was um that was i guess yeah i had a, had a mullet before my accident which was which was lot it was quite long and i i was very happy with it i loved it and um, all my friends knew i loved it <laughs> it's funny actually the last memory i have from my night of the accident was the a photo being taken on a polaroid camera of my mullet which i actually have with me that was my last memory of the night. So yeah, it's it's yeah. Obviously, it, my mullet meant a lot to me at the time, and my friends um, could see that. So they they thought mullet for a mate would be a great name for a fundraiser, which they created. And the the reason for the fundraiser was because um, I guess all the all the doctors and everything was was saying, you know, we don't know how he's going to turn out. We don't know how he's going to recover, how well he will be. So they created this fundraiser and a lot of people donated all family friends public um all donated and ended up raising about close to eighteen thousand dollars for me which oh, was wow. um yeah which was great i couldn't believe it and it was yeah it was it was for um just the financial side of it all you know i'd be out of work i was out of work for 16 months and you know they, they really looked out for me there a lot of that money went towards my surgeries it really helped me out that fundraising money it sounds like you had incredible support around you through all of this as well. Yeah, I was very lucky with um, all my family, all my friends. It was unreal how many people, you know, just wanted to help me out. And my family keeps saying the waiting room for when I was in when I was in my coma, there there would have been on average about thirty people on any random day just there waiting, just Aww. you know. They'd bring food for all my family and friends, and and it was just it was just great to oh, see how many lovely. people wanted to help out. Yeah, it was amazing. So you've gone on now to start doing things to help other people. You actually mentioned it before that you ran a half marathon. Can you speak about that and why you did that and why you decided to raise money for a, that particular organisation? All through my rehab, all through my rehab, all my recovery, I. I wanted to give back somehow, and I didn't know how. I had no idea. It was just a thought I had, um, and and help out. I guess the people that were or or could be going through the same experience as I was. A brain injury is, is something I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. It's it's not it's not the greatest. It's, it's it's really not. It's really not great. So I just wanted to help out, try and help out people that were going through a similar experience as me. And I thought about a fundraiser would have been a good way to start. So I didn't know who to go through or how to even really go about it. But when I came for a follow-up appointment with uh, Professor McDonald for my plate surgery, um, he was telling me about this this organization called um, the Neurosurgical Research Foundation. And he gave me one of their pamphlets and he said, yeah, give, give them a read. And I said, yeah, sure. So I gave him a read. I um, did my own research on them and soon found out that they do research all on everything everything about the brain so they do research on brain injuries obviously um, brain tumors everything any sort of disease with the brain 
so I, yeah, I took a liking to this and I, I decided to create a fundraiser through their website. My brother and I were talking about what we we're going to do for the fundraiser, you know, how we're we going to raise money. And we thought of the city debate. We thought perfect. But we didn't think the 12 kilometers was, was worth it. We thought, let's try and challenge ourselves. Let's try and do, do a bit more. So we ended up choosing the um, the half marathon, which was, I think, new that the city debate introduced. And we did the, yeah, 21.1 kilometer run we decided to do. So we created the fundraiser and we started putting it all on our social media and, and promoting it all. Um, and this caught the attention of many, I guess, advertising companies. This caught the attention of, obviously, the NRF contacted me and said, um, uh, we'd love to meet you. We've heard about your story. And so they, I met with them and they ended up um, promoting my story a lot as well. They set up a... An inter- uh, a meeting up with a few of the neurosurgeons from Flinders, which again, like I'm quite friendly with, who wanted to join in as well. So they got a couple of other neurosurgeons to join in the, the run with us. The fundraiser also caught the attention of the advertiser, the paper. They called me up and they did a interview over the phone and they wrote up a little article about me, which was great. Um, trying to promote my fundraiser, telling the public about my story. Seven News also heard about it as well, which they did a story on. A, they did a story about me early on in my recovery. Um, and yeah, they wanted to do a. They thought it might be a good idea to do a, I guess, before and after sort of segment. So they, they interviewed me after my run, and that was put up on the news. So it was just yeah, I got a lot of support from this fundraiser. I didn't know that it was going to blow up that big, and yeah, it was great. I was very happy with it all. It's obviously because it was for such a good cause too and because you've experienced it and then you've come a long way since then for you to then go and try and help other people. I think people look at that and see that as, you know, something good to follow up on and so well done. Yeah, I guess it it is a bit of a, I guess, a feel-good story. Um, yeah, I was very happy with all the all the support that I got from not just my family and friends, but from the public, the people I didn't even know, you know, they would reach out to me and just say how well it was and they I'd see all the comments on the on everything and yeah, it was just it was great, all the support and I was yeah, I was thrilled with it all. So you're talking earlier about you were going to be enlisted into the Air Force before you had your brain injury. Yeah. Then obviously you had the injury not long before you were meant to start that. Now you've decided to change your career path and you talk to us about what you have just started now to do instead. Yes. So I was very rude with the Air Force, but I was very upset that my accident sort of put a stop to that. I guess it was almost it was almost good in a way because um, obviously I found something that I'm a lot more passionate about now and that's just the brain, very interested in the brain. So I decided to apply for uni. And I got into uni for this year, um, University of South Australia, and I'm studying the Bachelor of Psychology Cognitive Neuroscience. I guess there's many reasons why I wanted to do the neuroscience side of it all. But yeah, the psychology was another interesting one for me because um, I guess I was very interested in, I'm just interested in how the brain works on the science side of it and on the, I guess, emotional side of it. And psychology was just something that, yeah, from what I was reading, just sounded exactly like I wanted what I wanted to find out more about so that's fantastic 
I find the brain so interesting too. Oh, it's great. Neuroplasticity, what it can do is incredible. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's all very interesting. Um, so what else have you got going on? I know you just started a website. What else are you doing with that? Yeah, so I just started up a website. It was It's called Project 19 and there's a, there's a bit behind that. Right now, I just want to try and, and promote, I guess, brain injury as much as I can. And the website will help out with that, I guess, on the social media platforms as well. I've got a Facebook page now, an Instagram page, and I want to try and promote brain injuries a bit more. I guess the the website as well can help with promoting fundraisers that I've got going on um, and fundraisers that I can promote, other people's fundraisers that I can promote. Um, Yeah, the website just provides a lot of information about what a brain injury is and what you can expect, you know, what families can expect with, with a family member of a brain injury. And yeah, I guess it's just my, it's my efforts in trying to promote and provide awareness about brain injuries to people that might not know much about it. Now we'll pop all your details in the show notes for this episode yep. as well. So people can find you and find out what you're doing. Yeah. Beautiful. So I did want to ask you, How have you changed as a person since the accident? So obviously you've changed your career path. You're looking more into brain injuries and all of that now. But I guess how do you think you've changed as a person because of the accident and kind of what have you learnt because of it? The the best way I can see it and the best way I can describe it is um, my traumatic brain injury was was a blessing in disguise, which some people may find a bit odd but i see it as a blessing in disguise before before the air force and everything like that i didn't really know what i wanted to do i guess the air force was something that i was it was almost i guess impulsive like i had no other idea what i wanted to do coming out of school and this this brain injury is i guess almost given me a purpose and and it's put out a lot of things in perspective for me um and um, yeah, I just see it as a as a blessing. It's it's really screwed my head on, um, which a lot of people actually <laughs> laugh at that. Yeah, <laughs> but no, it, it's it's been great. It's actually been yeah, it's been great having that. But I guess with this brain injury, I have changed, not for the worse, but I do I do have, you know, I do I have lost a bit of my filter. So sometimes I do say things that that may just come to mind and, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't filter it very properly, which I guess, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing. I, before my accident, I was, I was a bit of a, I don't know, I guess a, a bit of a pushover or a bit of a, you know, I just let people walk all over me. And after my accident now, I don't know, I just don't tolerate that kind of stuff anymore. And so mm. I think it's, I think it's been good in that way, my injury as well. I've just gained this this newfound confidence. I've just got all this confidence now, and which I did struggle with at the very start. But um, yeah, I've got all this new confidence and got this new purpose in in life. So it's I feel like it's been more of a blessing than it has a a hardship for me. Wow. Yeah. But I love hearing that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess have a good good look on it. But to be able to see that too, I mean, obviously you've been through a very difficult time. You've still got things that have come out of that injury but to be able to see it in a different light with a new perspective I love it when people say that 
because it is like I don't think not everyone would not everyone can see that when yeah. they go through hardships but to be able to do that I yeah I love it yeah yeah I think you've got it you've got to look at it you've got to look at it in a positive way you know if you if you look at things negatively in life you just it's that's just it's not going to make you happy it's just not the right way to do it I don't think you have to look you've got to try and find some positives about everything in life so I do have one final question that I ask everybody at the end of their interviews. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I would, you know, tell myself that I wish at the time I knew that life is unpredictable. I know it's, it sounds, I guess, a bit cliche, but life is unpredictable. And I, I don't think that we should all be um, wasting our, our life with things that don't make us happy or anything like that. You know, I think we should be enjoying it while while we've got this life. I guess as well at the time, as bad as it sounds, I don't actually regret, I wouldn't have told myself on the night to not drink that much that night because I just, I feel like that being young, I I had, there was nothing wrong with what I was doing, you know, I was being young, I was enjoying the night, it was New Year's Eve, it was just an accident, it was just, it was unfortunate, but it's just, it, anything could have happened that night, it could have happened to anyone, so I don't think I would have told myself, you know, don't drink tonight. I would have, it's just how it was. Um, I guess the only thing I would tell myself that night would have been, well, something that I have learned is maybe do it in a better controlled environment. Middleton is actually, that was the first time I had been to Middleton that night. Unfamiliar with the area and I guess just in a better controlled environment, do it around, I should have been drinking around people that I was uh, really close with because I was only close with a handful of people at that at that party, so... I guess um, do it in a, in a controlled environment would have been the would have been my my advice in the night. But I definitely would have would have said, yeah, life is unpredictable, and I think everything happens for a reason. I don't think that accident was you know was needed or anything like that. But it it, it has opened up my eyes. It's obviously, I feel like from what my family told me as well that it, it did happen for a reason. I, I guess I was a bit lost in life before my accident. I just didn't know what to do. And this injury has just given me this, this new purpose in life. And um, like I said before, we've got to look at, we've got to look at it in a positive way. I can, I can sit here and try and seek a lot of people to feel sorry for me or anything like that. But I, I don't want that. I want to, I want to use my experience to, I guess, better other people with brain injuries experiences and just do my best in with this experience, do my best um, to use it to its advantage, I guess. I know that was my final question, but I want to ask you something else, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. So you're saying you want to help support other people with brain injuries. How important has the brain injury community been for you to support you? Oh, the brain injury community, particularly um, Brain Injury SA, have been, um, have been amazing. Um, I did the uh, Youth Reconnect program through Brain Injury SA last year, and um, yeah, that was one of the best choices I'd made. We all we all go, we've all got brain injuries, we've all got something in common. Mm-hmm. We all talk about the same topic and everything we can do to to better ourselves. You know, on an, on an emotional level, or on a scientific level, on a, a nutrition level, everything like that. So. The, the brain injury community have been huge for me. They've all been supporting my 
you know, my goals in, in this website and my goals in everything I want to do. And um, they've, yeah, they're going to be, a lot of them are going to be my, you know, a long life mates now, which is great. So I'm, I'm really happy with that. That's fantastic. I yeah. love hearing that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. No, no worries. I really appreciate it. Thank you very it. much for And good me. luck with everything you've got going on in the future. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspirational Tales. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could please share it with your family and friends so that we can inspire more people. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please don't forget to leave us a rating or a view and make sure that you have subscribed or followed the podcast on whichever platform that you are listening to it on so that you can stay up to date as new episodes are released. Thanks again and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Inspirational Tales.